Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I'm pleased today to welcome Raina Lipsitz, who is author of Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics from Verso Books. Raina, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so to start, if you would, why don't you tell folks a little bit about who you are and your background and what it is that brought you to this book? Sure. Um, I So I've been writing about culture and politics for a long time. Uh, my work has appeared in places like Al Jazeera America, The Appeal, The Atlantic, The Conversationalist, The Nation, and The New Republic. Um, and, you know, basically what led me to write the book is that I'd been doing a lot of reporting in the last six years uh, on sort of new progressive candidates. And I wanted to paint a more nuanced portrait of who these energized young people were, where they were coming from, what was driving their politics. Uh, That was sort of the main motivation. And I also wanted the book to focus really more on the people on the ground and not just the big rock star um, political figures whose names everybody knows. Uh, I think there have, as much as I am interested in AOC and she is in the book, she is a figure in the book because I was able to interview her twice for the nation. Um, and I'm interested in people like her and Bernie Sanders, but I think that they are uh, pretty well covered. So I wanted to write a book that was a little bit broader and had to do with people you don't hear as much about. And sort of my secondary goal in writing the book was to get a a broader picture of, you know, it kind of annoyed me as a woman, <laughs> much of the coverage in 2016, the sort of idea that people who were supportive of the Bernie campaign specifically were only alienated young white men when I felt like the new progressive movement was a lot uh, broader and more diverse than that. Um, so why don't why don't we start there with that broader picture? Talk to us a little bit about when you're talking about the new left and that broader progressive movement. Um, how do we know it when we see it? Who are the individuals and organizations that we're talking about, or maybe what are the 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 ideologies or the policies that are distinguishing them from? I guess we would have to call it the old left, right? Sure. So, and it is a little confusing because, of course, there was an old new left also. Right. <laughs> new left in the. The new, new left. The new, new left, exactly. Um, So I attended a nationwide socialism conference organized by Haymarket Books in Chicago last year in September, uh, Labor Day 2022. And one thing that came up a lot at that conference was this idea that there are kind of multiple lefts, right? And the left is not one of the obstacles to creating, building power, on the left is that we're just not as unified or or cohesive as the right typically. Um, I mean, the right is is has its own sort of constituencies and diverse, disparate groups, but they're pretty united on major policy goals. I would say that, you know, I tried to get a pretty good cross section in my book of 
representatives of the new left. But basically what I have in mind are two broad strains, kind of the people who came out of the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, and then a different but overlapping group of people who came out of Bernie 2020. And then there are also people who really aren't aren't related to Bernie Sanders at all and includes, you know, prison abolitionists, uh, Medicare for all activists pretty much are in the Bernie camp. But, you know, there are a lot of different threads and strands. I'd say the sort of main broad definition of being on the left, what I mean by being on the American left is, um, you know, very broadly speaking, people who value human rights, democracy, and egalitarianism and want policies that improve life for working people. Uh, that's a pretty open-ended definition, but I think everybody in that I talked to for my book um, would fit into that, into that definition. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want us to talk about those sort of on the ground folks and those movement organizations, but in the reporting that you do for the book, you trace a lot of them. You, you, out of, out of many of their mouths comes uh, some kind of a, a radicalization story that often does begin with Bernie Sanders, either the 16 or the 20 campaign. Uh, and I've been reading a bit recently about uh, Chicago uh, uh, and other sort of large scale teachers unions in particular and their increasing militancy. And again, and again, you hear people talking about Bernie Sanders' campaign as being the thing that brought them into politics. Co, tell us a little bit. What is what is? I mean, is this super old white dude right from Vermont that seems to have all of these right young people from extraordinarily diverse backgrounds and experiences? What is the appeal of Bernie Sanders? Sure. Yeah, that's um. There's a funny moment in my book where I'm talking to a. a woman, young black woman who's a Brooklyn um, assembly woman. And she said, she was talking about Bernie Sanders. And she said, I couldn't believe this old white man with a, <laughs> with a Brooklyn accent who lived in Vermont, but spoke with a Brooklyn accent, right. had me feeling like I should be supporting him. And that is one of the, uh, I'm not sure if it's quite meets the definition of irony, but it, it's interesting that these young people, very young, diverse groups of people were so drawn to him. And I think that was a function of what he represented. I mean, he, he really, he had a policy platform that resonated with a lot of people. And for, especially for younger people, it was really the first time they'd seen somebody on the national stage who was honest and authentic and talking about things that mattered to um, to actual regular people. And that just was a really, a really big change from, I think pretty much everybody else they, they had been familiar with growing up. So before, before we turn our attention to talking about some of those leaders in the movement organizations, anything you think it's important for us to know about the so-called squad, right? This is the AOC, Cory Bush, Ilan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, uh, maybe Jamal Bowman, maybe Ayanna Presley, depending on what day of the week and where you want to focus. Um, is, what, do you, what do you want to say about sort of that collection of, of primarily young women of color in the house and, and what you think it, people might not know about them if they're only seeing sort of superficial coverage of them? That's a good question. I think that one of the challenges for the squad and, you know, when I, I started writing the book years ago, so it was kind of a different set of circumstances and narratives. I think it's very exciting that we finally have in Congress a 
granted a very small caucus, but a caucus of people who are united on policies like Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and are supporting, you know, very specific, have a specific vision and a cohesive kind of policy platform that they all support. I think that's the most important thing about them. I do think that the last few years have shown some of the limits of that model. And um, I think that it's it's really impressive what they've been able to do. But part of why the narrative gets collapsed in the kind of broader image of these people in mainstream political reporting is that being in Congress structurally forces you into, you know, there's just not much you can do until you um, either have a much larger caucus or figure out how to exert power as a tiny group of people, which we've seen on the right, you can do, right? I mean, it's possible to do that. It depends on, and there are these various strategy uh, disagreements behind the scenes all the time about when and how to use that leverage or what kind of leverage you even really have. I think that in Congress, what happens is you all get sort of funneled into this thing. I mean, it came up a lot in 2016. Oh, well, Bernie and Hillary Clinton voted the same way 98% of the time. That was a big talking point. Um, I may have gotten that percentage slightly off, but they voted together a lot. And that's because uh, those are the bills that, that came up for a vote, right? I mean, Congress is sort of a it's a narrowing, uh, narrows the horizons of what you can do more often than it is a place where you can make really big changes, especially in the last 50 years when we haven't had any uh, sort of major groundbreaking federal legislation. The biggest thing I'd say was Obamacare, and we've seen the limits of, of that in recent years as well. But um, so I think that they're, I think it's very exciting that they're there. I think they've, um, it's important and it's also uh, not an accident that they're young, diverse people. They were recruited that way on purpose um, by leaders like, you know, by people like Walid Shahid of uh, Justice Democrats. And I think that was a, a deliberate strategy on the part of Justice Dems. So they've done a lot, they've accomplished a lot, but also they need to figure out now where they're going and how to use the power they have and how to grow their caucus. Um, perfect. So let's use that as a segue. Um, you mentioned justice stems, um, layout for folks who may not be familiar what you think sort of the, the handful of key left movement organizations are, and then maybe tell us a little bit about each of them and how they're similar and how they're different. Sure. So my book kind of traces a, a bunch of these new groups and the major ones I'd say are Sunrise, Justice Democrats, Indivisible, and the newly expanded Democratic Socialists of America. So Democratic Socialists of America has been around um, in its current form since 1982. But of course, as anyone who uh, is interested in politics, American politics knows, it went through a major growth spurt um, connected to the Bernie campaign starting in, in 2016. And gained uh, overnight, I mean, essentially overnight, but actually within a few years, you know, tens of thousands of new members. So these groups, you know, they are very different. DSA, uh, of which I am a member, is is a membership organization. So that's the biggest difference. And they are democratically structured. And I think that has, um, like all structures, has its pluses and minuses. I think that people who really strongly believe in 
democracy and collective decision making are are pretty generally pretty happy with it, but it does make it harder to move, I guess, nimbly is a good way to put it. And that's sort of what Alex Rojas, who runs Justice Democrats, said to me in an interview. She said, you know, we are essentially a pack. Their leadership is pretty small. I mean, the the core group of people who make decisions for Justice Democrats, they can move a lot quicker. They can just decide to support someone, give them a bunch of money, but they're essentially a pack, which is a just a very different um, structure from from DSA. Indivisible, you know. Sunrise is, let's, is sorry. Can we let's hang on DSA for just a, a, sure, a second sure. longer? You've got yeah. uh, uh, one of the folks you profile in the book is Jonathan Smucker in in Pennsylvania, uh, and he uh, uh, talks about DSA as book club socialism. That, that's not a wildly uncommon sort of, of gross characterization of DSA, but you talked about sort of justice Democrats as functioning more or less as a pack. How would you describe what it is that DSA does and whether you think it's ultimately effective in what it does? Well, DSA strives to do a lot of things, and I think they have been very effective, mainly in large cities like New York New York City and Chicago, or yeah, and also chapters. Philadelphia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Large chapters, um, no accident that they're union towns, all of those cities. Uh, and I think the main focus, especially in the last couple of years, has been on supporting the resurgence of labor and making, connect, you know, doing strike support, also um, salting industries, getting people to take certain jobs with an eye towards organizing those uh, industries and job sites. So that that is a big part of what they do. They also have caucuses that are working on defund the police. And, you know, there also is a women, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's called the Women's Caucus anymore, but there's a um, an abortion rights component of DSA that especially in the last, for obvious reasons, has um has grown in the last year. Uh, so I don't, and, and to be fair to Jonathan Smucker, I think he, I think he qualified that, um, remark and he said that he, he's aware that certain chapters are doing really, there's a lot of variation. Yeah. There's a lot of variation. And he thinks that a lot of what they do is important. I think he actually is technically a member of, of DSA as well. Um, but he's much more interested in the kind of practical, uh, aspect of what DSA is doing more so than the theoretical right. discussions. And of course there are book groups in DSA as well. So, I mean, there's also a, a political education component that's not completely untrue. And I, I don't, I, I don't think that's useless either. I think some people do right. want to be, to learn more about the theory. Those things don't need to be intention necessarily, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think they can support, mutually support each other. Um, but DSA, I, I mean, my personal view is that DSA at its best is doing these sort of very specific interventions. And of course, the electoral stuff has gotten the most attention where they've intervened in primaries, especially in, in New York, and um, supported candidates like AOC, who who toppled right. uh, entrenched incumbents. Right. Um, so you were about to, to tell us about Indivisible. Indivisible, I, I found really interesting actually because I had a little, I had some preconceived ideas about the kind of people who were involved and sort of thought of them as, I guess, insufficiently radical. But they're by far the, you know, the largest organization and they've had the most, um, I think they've had the most success in sort of the opposite environment 
of DSA. Like they've had the mm-hmm. most success in places that really don't have uh, not only not no socialist presence, but no, n- not even really democratic voters. And they've made some inroads in places that don't have a lot of visible progressives. Um, one of the co-founders who I talked to for the book said that her family is from a very small town in Alabama. I believe it was Alabama. It was definitely somewhere in the South. And and she said there were no progressives uh, in the town that she grew up in. And so I think that was part of what she wanted to accomplish with this. Indivisible doesn't have as many. There is a litmus test. You have to, the candidates that they support have to I can't remember exactly what the list is, but they have to agree on certain policies. They have to promise not to um, do anything that would compromise Obamacare, but it's much broader and it's much easier to kind of meet their criteria than it is to meet the criteria DSA has for uh, the candidates that it supports. And are they too mostly engaged in candidate support or are they doing other things as well? I would, yeah, I think that's the primary thing that Indivisible does. There are local chapters that are involved in things like um, kind of issue specific organizing, housing stuff, and also supporting local bill, municipal and state bills that are progressive, you know, very broadly speaking, progressive. Um, So they are doing some of the, some issue specific work as well, but mostly what they do is, I I believe, is support candidates. What's your read on the Sunrise Movement? Who are they and what are they doing and and how effective do you think they are being? So Sunrise Movement is also a really interesting group and they are pretty entwined uh, with Justice Democrats. I think a lot of people, a lot of overlap on those boards and on the kind of founding, um, the founders of them have some people in common. Uh, I do think Sunrise was had a moment of being really extremely effective and they kind of single-handedly made the green new deal, something that Democrats, democratic candidates, major democratic candidates for national office had to take a position on. Um, That's a pretty impressive victory. And they were behind, you know, I think they helped get the inflation reduction act over the finish line I think that in other ways they haven't, uh, I mean, they're really just the most radical and effective environmental movement that, that, or environmental organization that has come out in the last five years, really in the last 10 years. So I'm impressed by what they accomplished on, uh, with respect to the green new deal that said, we don't have a green new deal. And I think they, they like some of these other groups are sort of hitting a, not exactly a wall, but a an inflection point where they need to make some, and I, they have been having these internal right. conversations about where do we go next? How can we leverage what we've done? They worked really, really hard on Build Back Better, and that also basically fell apart, and many of the um, best parts of that were, were just stripped out and didn't get done. So a lot of these groups, there's a learning curve. You know, these are very young people, and it's amazing what they've accomplished. And it's also clear that there, that there are limits, especially structurally with the system that we have. Although that said, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, which name notwithstanding was not an inflation bill. It was a climate bill and included, you know, 
depending on how you do your math, some non-trivial portion of the Green New Deal agenda, right? It did, yes. And it, they, they issued a statement that was pretty interesting about uh, about that bill. And they basically said it did some really important, really groundbreaking things, made historic investments in um, combating climate change, and it was not nearly enough and didn't go far enough and isn't being funded to the adequate um, you know, commensurate with what, what we need. And I think that was an, a very interesting example to me of what an organization can, I mean, that's part of the goal of these organizations is to be honest with people about what is happening and to be both, it's a, it's a difficult balance to celebrate wins and progress and also explain why and when it's not good enough and what we need to be fighting yeah. harder for. Yeah. And to circle back a little bit, it's it's part of why there are some folks who are already accusing AOC of being co-opted or selling out, right? The the yes. tensions between, right, the difference between being an outside movement actor trying to push on the system and being in, inside the system functioning within it. It's, it's a very old problem, right? Those are, yes. those are yes. very different things. Exactly. I think that's right. And I think that is one of the um, the main tensions that these groups are are dealing with internally. And also, we can see from what's happening and what they have done and what they haven't been able to do, where those limits are. Yeah. Um, so speaking of internal tensions, uh, what's your read on what's going on with organized labor at the moment and recently? I think that's actually a very exciting We're in an exciting moment for organized labor. I think that, you know, a lot of these tensions are old, right? I mean, they've, as you pointed out, they've, they've, they're not, it's not exactly new for people to say, can you stay radical when you are, when you become an elected official, when you become an incumbent, when you become a member of the establishment. And similarly, I, I don't think it's new to say that there are, divides within the U.S. labor movement. And there's a sort of influx of young radical energy, also a lot of educated people, I mean, college educated people. So, you know, DSA is, I would say, I don't think it's as white an organization as it's been portrayed as in the media, but I do think it's it's a pretty a pretty college educated organization in general. There are, that is most of the people who have joined it and are active in it. And so part of it is, you know, my, my, um, one of my uncles is, was the head of Western New York labor coalition, um, in Buffalo for a long time. He just recently retired and he worked with Teamsters and it's a different population, you know, the kind of traditional stereotype of labor is old white guys in hard hats. Um, new labor is, a lot of women and people of color in care roles, you know, domestic workers, home health aides, people like nurses, um, hotel workers, exactly. And now just recently, just in the last couple of years, there's a, another strain of people, which is um, a woman I just interviewed for a Cranes New York profile uh, who, whose name is Alyssa Court, who runs the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And she had a word, her description of it was the black turtleneck, uh, black turtleneck organizers. And, and she was praising them. You know, these are museum workers, highly educated people, museum workers, new media people, uh, a lot of newsrooms, a lot of magazine made, you know, Condé Nast, I think was, um, 
just went through precarious a college instructors. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Right. Academics um, yeah. and grad students, gra- graduate student workers. Uh, and so those are, that's where the tension comes from, right? Is that there are these very distinct constituencies and they don't always see themselves as part of, uh, as politically aligned. And I think that that is actually a big project of DSA and a lot of these other new organizations, also Working Families Party. I mean, that was why Working Families Party was founded originally was to kind of unite these um, sectors and unite nonprofit workers with traditional, more traditional labor constituencies. And I think we've seen some really promising and exciting developments and and there has been an upsurge in labor and also in militant labor. And there's been more class consciousness than I saw, certainly than I saw growing up in the 90s when no nobody conceived of themselves. It was, you know, I mean, a very narrow group of people did. And then everybody else was like, what are you talking about? I mean, it was not really on the radar of, um, particularly of, of college graduate, college graduates and professional class people. So I think there, there are a lot of exciting developments. And I also think that it's a, a thing that is still being, um, worked out internally. I mean, so let's talk a little bit about sort of, of, of failures. And then I want to end by talking about successes and where, where you see hope, right? One of the, the things that strikes me, and you write a little bit about this in the book, is that with the, the uh, post-murder of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter associated protests, we saw what were, um, I think, demonstrably the largest and most sustained protest movements in all of recorded U.S. history, Literally, right? When you look at sort of the folks who gather data on these sorts of things. And arguably, the consequence of that is more police and more police funding rather than less police and less police funding. And we still see police murder of civilians occurring on a regular basis. We're still at what, about a thousand a year, give or take disproportionately people of color. Um, I mean, it's, I, I think about that and think it's like, wow, okay, if that kind of mass mobilization doesn't result in policy change, are we doomed? So let's start there. Are we doomed? Is that a terrible indication that this kind of pressure no longer works in the world we inhabit? I, I don't think so. And here, I mean, oh, I, but I, do, <laughs> I certainly was disappointed with where we ended up on, on police accountability issues as someone who's written a lot about this in recent years. And it is kind of shocking. What you just said is true is largest action in history, millions and millions of people in the streets for, for weeks on end. I think there are a lot of reasons why that didn't add up to uh, major federal legislation. One of them is that the there was no clear leader of those actions, right? In many ways, they were spontaneous. There were a lot of different groups involved. Um, there were individual people who, who stood up and started some of this. So it wasn't part of a cohesive, you know, to some extent, it was, I think you could draw a parallel with Occupy, right? At, but Occupy Wall Street and um, these major Black Lives Matter uprisings of 2020, they did add up to something. They didn't add up to sort of specific policy changes in the way that I think a lot of people hoped, but I, they added up to a real cultural shift. And I think 
in some ways the climate is better. It's nowhere near what it needs to be, but we have seen that police who openly murder people now get fired, you know, a little bit more than they than they ever did. I mean, before they wouldn't even lose their jobs, but they're getting fired. They're getting prosecuted in certain really egregious cases. And that is because of movement pressure. Um, however, you know, I, as somebody who, as a student in my student days, marched against the invasion of Iraq, which was right. also a, a many, many millions of people were involved from around the world. Around right? the world. Around yep. the world, right. Global yep. um, global turnout. And uh, that didn't work either. And I think one of the lessons, you know, one of the things that gives me a lot of hope, actually, and what I sort of say at the end of the book is that people are getting a little bit um, smarter, more strategic, and having these conversations. I think younger people are getting more sophisticated about how they do politics and what, what does that mean? You know, like there has to be some broader vision and, and alignment of groups and kind of focus and discipline going into a major action, or it's not going to add up to anything. And I also think that there's this really interesting tension between people younger than me, I'm 40, but most of the people I talked to for this book were a lot younger uh, so people younger than 40 and then people, my parents' age, my parents are, um, about to be 70 and where people in my parents' generation who were broadly speaking on the left or progressive or however you want to call it, uh, they mar they see themselves as having done political things that got a political result, right? Like marching against Vietnam. And then we pulled out of Vietnam. I think that's a little bit of a, uh, simplistic view of what happened there. I mean, that, that sort of collapses a lot of things and I don't, and I think it confuses some cause and effect. I think there are a lot of reasons that the war ended and public pressure was one of them, but it wasn't, there wasn't a one-to-one -one connection between those things. But in any case, I do understand why people that age think we did this and we got things, you know, and we marched for abortion rights and we got them. And younger and people today who are under forty don't have any experience like that. You know, they see that they, if they if they did things, if they were involved in politics, it didn't work. They rallied behind Bernie and he didn't win, and they want wanted the Green New Deal, rallied behind the Green New Deal, and we don't have a Green New Deal. So, part of the thing that we have to figure out going forward on the left is how do we connect our actions with our desired outcomes. And that's a very challenging thing to do because we have a fundamentally anti-democratic structures like the Senate, uh, like the Electoral College, these things that are keeping us from achieving you know, policies and, and legislation that have broad, broad popular support. Yeah. And as you you quote uh, AOC sort of semi-famously saying a while ago, uh, in no other political system on the planet would she and Joe Biden be in the same party. That's right. Right. Which right. was so perceived as a like an insult or a swipe or something. And I, I really think she just meant it as a as a political observation. It's a statement I mean, about the, the constraints that the system itself places right. upon the ability of sort of that concentrated left power to achieve successes. That's right. Yeah. Um, 
so so that's that's all very helpful. Leave us with a, a final hopeful thought. Where do you where do you see what are the things that you look at in your reporting and the people that talk to, to that you talk to uh, that really sort of of keeps you motivated and keeps you hopeful about our ability to confront the enormously daunting challenges that we currently face. Sure. I think that um, there are two things. One is what I just said about people getting a little more sophisticated about power and really trying to understand. And that's where the political education piece comes into it. I don't I don't think that's a wasted effort. I think reading about our history as a country, reading about the history of politics in general, you these forces become a lot clearer and it's less it's less surprising when there are setbacks. It's less devastating. And you understand that you're in a long haul struggle. I mean, every major progressive victory we've achieved in this country came after decade, decades of, and sometimes even decades. 100 years, yeah. right? I mean, women, yeah. women's suffrage didn't, we didn't get for yeah. a century. So Successes of the civil rights movement started right. with organizing in black churches in the 1920s. <laughs> right. And even before, right? And before, right. Yeah. So I think that's uh, one thing that gives me a lot of hope. And the other thing is that I, I'm so, <laughs> I'm always so distressed when people, and I've been really heartened and encouraged by the fact that the, when people read the book, they say, oh my gosh, it actually made me feel really hopeful. Um, I think people think it's going to be a bummer, like when they see the title or when they read some of the less um, less cheery parts of it, like you were talking about the fact that we don't have any federal legislation addressing police brutality. But really, to me, uh, what I learned from researching and from talking to all these people is that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it doesn't bend toward justice without sustained human effort. And we can do that together. And that's not a, um, I think people think of that as kind of a crushing obligation, but it, it is not just an obligation. It's a way of building community and it's a path out of the darkness. It's a path to joy and hope. And I think especially after the coronavirus, you know, the, the last three years of, of political turmoil and a literal plague, uh, you know, that killed a million Americans and, mil- and millions of people around the world. Uh, that's something that's really needed. And I think more and more people are interested in that and having a real political life, a real a life of civic engagement that isn't just about tweeting or or insults on the internet, but it's about building something together. You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Raina Lipsitz, who's the author of The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, new out from Verso Books. Raina, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me.